Sorry for the tomfoolery, love. Let's just check these levels here, and away we grow. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey gang, and now for something completely different. Think of this as peering out from an EVA pod window to an angle of Kubrick's Universe you've likely never glimpsed before. Mike Kaplan is a film producer, documentary director, actor, award-winning poster designer, marketing strategist, and songwriter. He has been a close associate to many visionary filmmakers, including Robert Altman, Hal Ashby, Lindsay Anderson, Mike Hodges, Alan Rudolph, and Paul Thomas Anderson. He directed the documentaries Luck, Trust, and Ketchup, Robert Altman in Carver County, which showed Altman's filmmaking technique for the first time, and Never Apologize. Malcolm McDowell's tour de force performance documentary about Lindsay Anderson, an official Cannes Film Festival selection. As an independent distributor in the UK, he released Barbet Schroeder's The Valley, Obscured by Clouds, which had over 400 play dates in England, a record for a subtitled film at that time, as well as Jack Hazen's A Bigger Splash, featuring David Hockney, which played for a year in London setting house records and establishing a day-and-date release pattern for what became known as art films. Wearing his strategist hat, he rescued Mike Hodge's Croupier from Video Oblivion as it became the most successful and acclaimed independent film in the United States. But wait a minute. This is Kubrick's universe. So what's the angle here? Well, perhaps Mike is best known for conceiving the ultimate trip Star Child campaign for 2001 A Space Odyssey, and his subsequent work on Clockwork Orange when he worked directly for Stanley Kubrick. Mike tells us how he got started in the Advertising, Publicity, and Exploitation, or APE, department at MGM in the mid-60s, along with the epiphany of his first experience seeing 2001 just before its initial release, his encounter with Stanley Kubrick in the projection booth on opening night in New York, rumors 
that the Beatles wanted to write a song for 2001, Kubrick asking Mike himself to write the promo song, which he did, and other tales of Hollywood during its second golden age. Later on, you're going to hear Mike's original promotional song, commissioned by Kubrick himself. It is the second time ever to be officially broadcast, the only other time being at midnight of the new millennium. Stephen Rigg and Mark Lenz conducted the following interview. Enjoy. So, Mike, you were working in the publicity department of MGM in 1968 when you were first tasked to work on 2001 A Space Odyssey. Firstly, how did you get the job in MGM, in the marketing department, uh, and what had you been doing prior to that? I mean, you must have been quite uh, young. Well, yeah. Well, I began working in MGM in, I think, 1965. I graduated from college in '64 and worked at AIP, American International, for a few months. And then, um, maybe it was longer than that. And then the trade press contact position opened up at MGM, which I uh, went after and got. So I was, it was basically the first, well, after AIP was the first job that I had after college. And I was always a movie passionate movie person always wanted to be a movie critic because they thought what better job could you get than get to get paid for going to the movies. And then, um, Oh no, actually before then the first job I got was right out of college on a trade paper called the independent film journal. And it was a biweekly trade magazine and it was great training because we had to do everything from laying it out to going to the printer to writing everything in it and doing all the captions it was fantastic education and uh my first editor there direct editor not the editor of the publish publication who just wrote the editorials but was Stuart byron who was uh became kind of a noted film critic and writer and a reporter at Variety and later Boston Phoenix, and then was the first kind of commercial, uh, wrote the first commercial um, column about the film business for the Village Voice. So he was a real pioneer and extremely bright and learned a lot from him. Anyway, I was at MGM and um, 2001 was the most important film that the studio was releasing. It was the most expensive. I think the budget was $12 million then, which was, I don't know, $150 million today or something close to it. And we were also in the midst of a proxy fight. So, in, in fact, the entire future of MGM was was in balance when two th- about 2001 because it was the most important film uh, the studio was releasing and they were fighting for... Uh, you know, the survival from um, the proxy uh, opponents. And it was a film that we were all waiting for, but we knew nothing about because uh, there wasn't really a script. We just saw the stills. I was expecting that it was going to be like a modern uh, souped up Flash Gordon, which turned out to be Star Wars. And um, no one had seen the film until like the week before it was supposed to open. Stanley was finishing the editing in California 
you know, and, and there were, weren't huge stars in it. And it was a big challenge to market it uh, without knowing anything about it. Plus, when we first saw it at the first, I guess I saw it at the first, well, I think it was before the first press preview. I think there was a screening for the staff or something, uh, like a few days before. It was opening on a Friday and the press previews were like Monday and Tuesday. We had seen it the week before. And anyway, uh, I think it was that first week and uh, we saw it and it just uh, threw us, threw me and everyone else completely because it was like nothing else we had ever seen. It was nothing like uh, any other movie. It was counter to whatever we were expecting, which were basically, uh, you know, Flash Gordon with lots of spacesuits and uh, uh, spacecraft and stuff. And uh, so we were totally flummoxed. All I knew is that I had to see it again to get any kind of grasp on it. And there were people in the publicity department that a few that felt the same way. And there was uh, already talk that, though we were thinking that, you know, th this is something that no one has ever dealt with before. So uh, we went, I went to see it again. It was kind of like a revelation because the whole, um, I don't even know how to describe it today, but the whole metaphysical, magical, mysterious, spiritual, uh, evolutionary reincarnation aspect of the movie that you can interpret in various different ways came through and it was like uh, epiphany. And um, there were several other people in the, in the department that felt, th felt the same way. And it was also the sixties and we had all experienced the smoking grass and the, without smoking anything, but just seeing the movie, the transporting nature of it was similar. So there were people, uh, a couple of people, we were going around saying this film's a trip. That's how, and that the whole um, marketing of it had been wrong because it was it was being directed at uh, the mainstream audience who were not really accustomed to a science fiction film to begin with. And whatever they heard about a science fiction film, they were seeing from the advertising, which was basically, you know, spaceships and spacesuits and uh, a journey to the unknown and, you know, uh, at something. And there was nothing, nothing to guide the audience into what the movie was. Hmm. So um, I became uh, obsessed with it, and um, there was a Stanley's marketing person. First of all, marketing wasn't even uh, a word used uh, at that point. Marketing came into being like 15 years later when a lot of MBAs from uh, Harvard joined the film industry. It was always publicity. The department was called publicity, advertising, publicity, and exploitation. That's what uh, we were a part of. And... Um, I was in the publicity department and at that point handling uh, it was smaller than most of the major studios. And I was, my province was um, newspapers, uh, broadcasting and syndicates uh, and radio. So it was a big um, area. Stanley's marketing person was someone called Roger Karras, who was a terrific guy and later became uh, the uh, nature 
editor for ABC News. Uh, and he was really smart and, and he was really accessible and open. And no one had met Stanley or spoken to Stanley at all. And, and Roger was the contact person. And um, I, he and I hit it off and I presented it to him, you know, that we were totally in the wrong direction and we've got to go in another way in order to make people understand what the film is. And he uh, agreed with me and um, wanted said that, well, you'll have to talk to Stanley about this. And so um, I was, uh, you know, pumped up and nervous about having to meet Kubrick. I was, I think, 24 or 25. And to tell him that uh, he had positioned, the, the entire film was positioned the wrong way. Uh, and by that point, there had been a couple of press previews and the press it was totally flummoxed by it. Uh, most of the people dismissed it. They said it was long and boring and what's going on. And, you know, there's no plot and blah, blah, blah. And whatever, you know. Um, so, uh, so we were in dangerous territory because the critics at that point were much more important than they are now. And in fact, the critics names used to be on the marquee instead of the actors and with a quote from them. That's how important they were, particularly the ones out of New York who controlled everything else around the country or set the tone. So, um, and we were, in, we were in deep trouble there and I knew that immediately. And so we've got this huge movie, which, Already, I'm thinking it's, you know, one of the greatest films ever made, if not the greatest. And no, the audience doesn't know what to do with it. And the studio doesn't know what to do with it. And Stanley was controlling everything and had that right, as he should have. And so um, Roger said, well, you have to meet, you'll, you'll have to talk to Stanley about this as soon as possible. It was the third screening. We had two or three press, two, I think, press screenings in New York. And then it was the night of the New York premiere with a big red carpet and everything, which I think is the last time Stanley ever went on the red carpet. And I was brought in to meet Stanley in the projection booth of the Capitol Theater <laughs> at the showing of the New York premiere while people were walking out, uh, even in the beginning. And it was a totally... Um, unreal situation because the Capitol at that point was going to be torn down after, after the first uh, month's run of 2001, it was the roadshow uh, theater for MGM and the previous film. There was the wonderful world of the brothers Grimm. So the whole lobby was, was, uh, had been, um, set design so that you were walking through like magical gardens and over little bridges, like you're in a fairy tale or something. So that's what you walked into. And that's what I had to walk through going into the projection booth to meet <laughs> Stanley Kubrick. So um, I'm, I go into the booth and Stanley is by the, by one of the uh, projectors um, in his tuxedo with his uh, bow tie undone, you know, kind of leaning next to it with one of the editors and um, Roger introduces me. said, this is Mike who I've told you about. And I put out my hand to shake his hand and he won't shake my hand. And I said, okay, <laughs> I'm going to be in, be in trouble here and from his point of view he has this kind of long-haired publicist coming in to tell him that his entire campaign is is wrong and he's immediately questioning my validity to even you know mm. speak about this yeah 
So uh, we look at each other, and the, the first thing that he says to me is, uh, why doesn't Pauline Kael like my movie? Now, Pauline Kael was the, the most um, intellectually, I don't even know intellectually, she was the most uh, influential, uh, not even influential, but intellectually important critics in New York, although she wasn't the most important critic. She had a certain reputation because she was a very provocative writer and she wrote for the New Yorker and had gained this uh, credibility, which I think is totally overrated, but that's mm. who was the leading critical light among the intelligentsia and among the opinion makers at that point. Mm. Now, Pauline Kael was someone that wasn't in my purview of of who I handle. I was in broadcasting newspapers and, and uh, syndicates and uh, uh, and print, and so um, I read her occasionally, uh, uh, and I always felt that, that I knew her a little bit, and always felt she was condescending. And uh, I liked her writing if I liked the movie that she was talking about, and if I didn't like it, there was no point in ever even discussing it with yeah. her. And so just by luck, uh, I always followed the 10 best lists of the year uh, from all media uh, with, uh, as part of my marketing duties, I felt. And so um, the question was in the, in the air, why doesn't Pauline Kael like the movie? And I knew she didn't like the movie for, ver for various reasons, but I didn't know why. She hadn't written anything and she's not going to tell you about it. <laughs> And that's what he's expecting me to know about immediately. <laughs> and so he says, so the question is, why doesn't Pauline Kael like my movie? And I said to him, and I don't know how I ever did this, but I said to him, because she felt the Bible was the best film of the year. <laughs> and when I said that to him, <laughs> uh, he looked at me and it broke the ice. And he, yeah. there wasn't any, I mean, it was like a chess move almost. And it was like checkmate. So from that point on, I had the forum to tell him what I thought about the movie and what had to be done. And uh, he basically agreed. So, um, and so I said, he said, what can you do? And so we've got to get into it and reversing the critics and, in, in positioning it in a way that it's opening up people's eyes in ways they haven't looked at things before. And, and I don't remember exactly the conversation. I just remember the Pauline K line because it was like one I'll, I'll never forget and how I ever figured that one out. I don't know. So um, anyway, we, I was in the booth of th throughout the movie and um, Stanley, you know, uh, came out at the end to see Christiana and Walker out to the theater. And then I think they had the party. There were droves of first nighters who had been walking out all the way through the movie. It was a charity premiere. I mean, and it was an audience that if they were going to see anything in the movie, it was absolutely the wrong audience that was going to be important to spread the word because they had no idea what was going on. Basically. I mean, there were, it had to be a few people, but basically that, yeah. that was it. Did you see the version? There was seemingly a very early version that did make it to New York that was 20 minutes longer. 19, it was 19 minutes longer. Played the first week. That, that's another, um, I don't know how much I want to, or if I want to get into it at all, but 
uh, I've been trying to get that 19 minutes restored uh, for a long time, and it's racked with problems whether or not it exists and how it could be reconstructed. And I had long conversations with Stanley about not cutting it because uh, he cut it that first week in New York uh, in the cutting room. He had a cutting room built in the uh, or Steenbeck in the basement of the MGM building where he was making the changes and he was under an enormous amount of pressure because of uh, the reaction to the film because of where MGM was financially. And uh, he decided that he had to do it. He was also talking to them about financing Napoleon, which I think was a a factor in that decision. And he said, I can make it work. And I, I told him, my feeling was that people who love the movie are going to love it with the 19 minutes. And if you cut the 19 minutes off, the people who don't get it are still not going to get it. So it's futile, but he did it. And, um, you know, we had serious discussions about that and he, and he, and he did a great job in, in certainly in taking those 19 minutes out. Uh, and he had to do it very skillfully, but he was a master editor as well. And, and knew what he was doing. There is a cut in it that I always see that I know where it happened. It always jars me. It's organic to the film, but it's it's always disturbing to me. Where was? Where is that cut, Mike? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> well, uh, we're real interested in the 19 minutes. And secondly, I'd like to do a walking tour because I live right next to New York City. Uh, about 2001. And I know where the Capitol Theater was. Right. Uh, the MGM offices, were they down at the base of Times Square? No, the MGM lo- offices were, they had moved from the Lowe's Theater building on Broadway and between 45th and 46th. And we had moved into new offices a few years before. It was, uh, I think it's still called the MGM building on um, 55th Street, the corner of 55th Street and 6th Avenue. Okay, I know where that is. So from you uh, being involved pretty much from when it got released to the general public, how long did it take before this new campaign, you know, the ultimate trip campaign that, that you came Well, the ultimate trip campaign was the result of the that ultimate trip with the Star Child campaign was 1970. That was two years later. Now, I had tried during that time to get the ultimate trip uh, used um, – in some fashion in quote ads and uh, aside from an occasional ad from the record company for the soundtrack album, the studio wouldn't do it. It was too uh, druggy or too uh, whatever. Uh, yeah. it, it was too uh, provocative for them to be using and they were going with, you know, much more traditional imagery and stuff. So, uh, but but during that two-year period, there was a great deal of work being done to um, um, I don't know what to well, Easy Rider came out, didn't it? Sixty-nine. That must that must have helped the studio go along with your idea. Yeah, well, Easy Rider was in that vein also. It was a it was a youth movie, and it was about uh, transforming society, if you will, and. Um, there was a lot more of the all, um, alternative media and the alternative thinking at that point. That so that by 1970, when I had been um, 
promoting the film in ways that were uh, calling attention to what it was talking about. And, and I had like a 40 or 50 page copy of all the reviews, both positive and negative, that I would be sending out to, ver- to, the, to the various press to stimulate them into writing about the movie and the controversy. And uh, there was a New York Times piece which I was involved in, uh, Sunday piece, which was important at that point, of course, saying, I think the headline was, our, our hair in 2001, the wave of the future. And so it was that kind of attention that was creating the film as a phenomenon. And that was, so by 1970, what had happened was, and this is sort of, um, uh, serendipity, I guess, is that in New York, uh, was the business in New York was always marginal. In, in some cities, it was not good at all. In other cities, it was terrific, like Seattle, I think Dallas, and whatever. Um, but um, the the run at the Capitol was limited because the film the Capitol was going to be torn down, which was a shame. It was a gorgeous theater. I mean, so it was moved to. Uh, after it left the uh, the capital, where it was doing, you know, good business. It wasn't huge, but it was solid. It was absolutely solid. And people going back more than once and the whole um, alternative aspect of the movie and the whole intellectual and art aspect of the movie was being written about more and more and word was spreading. And so after it left the capital, it went to, I think it was the Aster uh, on Broadway. And that was also a 70 millimeter house. And, but that, that um, I think so was at the Capitol for three or four months. And then it moved over to, to the Astor theater because the Capitol was being torn down, but MGM was committed to open ice station zebra at Christmas in at the Astor because it was their only other 70 millimeter house. Mm. So, uh, so 2001 had leave. And so 2001 left the, the asset where it was doing good business. In fact, I station zebra opened, which was a very iffy movie to begin with <laughs> by the third week of I station zebras run. It was, it was performing lower than what 2000 had one had done in the fourth, third month of its run at the asset. It went on what was called then a showcase break, which went and went into the suburbs and in the best theaters. And I don't know, there were 10 of the best theaters in, in the boroughs. So I forgot what it was called. I think it was showcase. And, but it was in 35 millimeter. And the performance of the movie in 35 millimeter was far below what the comparative roadshow releases were when they went on, on yeah. the showcase right. So I was doing a lot of research on that. There were no computers at this point. I mean, there were the old computers where you had the, you know, the the tape coming out. And, you know, it was a lot of hard work. It's not like these things anymore. (laughs) Um, So I did a memo saying that, you know, the reason that the film is not doing the business that the other roadshows would be doing, like Sound of Music or Lawrence or Varabia or whatever is because the people don't want to see it in 35 millimeter. They want to see it with all the bells and whistles like it should be shown. That's the only way it should be shown. So that was something that I was working on for months. And Stanley knew this and naturally supported it and, and, and uh, of course wanted it to happen. And so uh, after um, 
I guess it was by Christmas of that year or whatever, between 69 and 70, uh, or in January, uh, my boss came to me and said, okay, we're going to bring 2001 back. And uh, I wanted to change the campaign at that point, but they wouldn't hear hear of it because it was going to cost too much money. But three weeks before the film opens, uh, Mort Siegel, who was the head of, he became the head of the department at that point, came in to see me and he said, okay, they've agreed to change the campaign. What's it going to be? Now that's the first time that that, that it happened. <laughs> and for some reason I said, um, I said, it's just, it's use the star child and nothing else. And, um, the Star Child and the Dawn of Man sequences had both been embargoed by Stanley uh, to be used in publicity. Okay, man. Nothing used about either of them because he felt, uh, and rightly so, in certain, in most ways, that uh, it would just be giving the, the audience totally the wrong impression. Yeah, of the movie, even worse than w- when it was. But I, my reason for saying it is that I wanted to bring. Um, a humanity into the campaign of something mm. that the people could relate to aside from uh, spaceships. And uh, there was a still from the movie that was used also a beautiful still of the lights coming off of Kia Delay's uh, space helmet, but it was a space helmet and he was in a space helmet. He was in some kind of bubble. I wanted something that would be striking that had never been seen before and that could relate to the audience on a, on a human level. And so that's how, that's how that happened. And uh, again, it was just, you know, it was three weeks before and it had never been done before. I mean, I, you know, the campaign would be changed that radically that quickly. And um, that's what happened. Great poster. That's my, that's my favourite poster that was done in 2001. So, uh, shall we move on to the, the single? Well, the single, I mean, this has been a... Uh, it's just an, been an amazing turn of events because um, I never anticipated this was going to happen. Um, the way the single began was that I was, I call myself a marketing strategist now on a movie, which is a much more accurate term rather than being a publicist or whatever. But again, marketing wasn't using, but that's what I use now. So I would be meeting with Stanley every day. We would be strategized in the MGM building. There was a big conference room on the publicity floor where he had chair sheets from every newspaper and magazine lining the walls. It was like the war room in uh, Dr. Strange's love. And, um, uh, uh, you know, the soundtrack was getting a lot of attention and, uh, you know, uh, the cultural phenomenon aspect of 2001 uh, was building and we were fighting negative reviews as best we can. There had been um, uh, certain uh, major uh, print pieces had emerged that were very important and that were positive. And so, um, so I was in the, I was there with Stanley. My office was right next door to it. So I'd be, you know, with him every day, you know, uh, for the six weeks that he was, you know, in New York after the film opened or two months, whatever it was. And so I was there one day, uh, one afternoon, and Morton Nassiter, who was the president of MGM Records, came up to play this uh, single for 2001. 
which I didn't know anything about. And the only thing that we had heard was that the Beatles were interested in maybe doing something about writing something about 2001 because they loved the movie. And there was a famous John Lennon quote that says, uh, I see 2001 every day. Yeah. And that was the reality because there'd been some discussion with Stanley had spoken to one of them or the Beatles people or whatever, but nothing had been produced. But they wanted to, the record company wanted to capitalize on the success of the movie, so they came up with this other uh, single. Uh, this uh, they came up with a demo, which they were going to play for for Stanley that afternoon. And I happened to be there, and the song was like this maudlin, banal um, kind of um, love song. Uh, from the 40s almost. And the la- I remember something like the last lyrics of the song were, and I'll still love you in 2001. <laughs> I mean, it was that kind of thing. And so I'm looking at Stanley and Stanley's looking at me. And I mean, it's just a really pathetic attempt. And and um, <laughs> it's over that Stanley in his uh, brilliant way, he says, uh, I don't think so, Mort. Let's see what the Beatles come up with. And, <laughs> and, that, was, and that was that. Was that. And, and, you know. Um, that was his way of saying he didn't like it, basically. Yeah, that was the way of saying, you know, forget about this. Uh, so uh, then he turns to me and he says to me, you, you write music. Why don't you write something? Now. I don't even know. I always kept my music private. There were very few people who knew about it. I have no idea how Stanley even knew that. I mean, I just don't know. Um, there was one other person. Uh, there were two other people in the department that knew knew I did write music, but it must have come from one of them, but, but uh, one of them doesn't remember it. The other one's passed away. But so I still don't know how he did. And I, and I was really... Uh, flummoxed by it. I didn't know how to respond to him because um, I said, what I write, first of all, the idea of of having a single for 2001 seemed to me to be preposterous to begin with. I mean, how are you going to write a pop single about 2001? I mean, it's an impossible uh, challenge. And secondly, I mean, the music is, I still feel, is the most ingenious use of, of music in a movie, period. Uh, what he's done so i said you know i know what i would do uh my stuff is more like standards and uh so then he gives me what i've written and called the that's not good enough look which is this penetrating look that he would give you if he didn't think the he it wasn't the answer that he wanted or (laughs) wanted you to do something in addition yeah and that's what that's what he gave me and uh, I think I, you know, and there were no words spoken. It just, it was, you know, it was like this beam coming <laughs> directly yeah. out of his eyes. And so um, uh, I don't know what I said. I said, well, I'll have to think about it or something. And I basically put it out of my mind, but he planted the seed. And I lived in an apartment right next door to the MGM building at that point with a, an old beat-up piano. And I, I uh, kept on thinking about it. And over the next month, uh, it came out. And um, I knew it had, to, it had to be something that was, uh, didn't sound like anything else to me. And it had to be as original in a certain way as the movie was. And so, 
those that was my foundation for it, I guess. And then uh, the only other song that I could think of that would uh, be an influence was MacArthur Park, which was a seven minute Jim Webb um, song that piece that Richard Harris sang, which was an unexpected hit and ran for seven minutes. It wasn't like a three minute um, yeah. pop song uh, timer. And um, so that was the, that was what I was aiming for to do something as original as that, but for 2001. And uh, as I knew all of what had been written about the movie critically, there'd been two major things that, that had come out when I was uh, that when I was minorly involved in as, as uh, uh, influencing. Uh, which was uh, the uh, not really influencing, but just being passionate about the movie. And it got to a friend of mine who was the critic at Newsday, Joe Joseph Gelmis, who was a terrific critic at Newsday, was a big Long Island newspaper with a huge circulation. And he had gone back after panning the movie, after I had been, you know, I'd been trying to get people to look at it a different way. He went back and he reversed himself and wrote a total rave comparing it to the response to Moby Dick when Moby Dick was first yeah. published. And so um, aside from one other reversal that Joe Morganston, Joe Morganston, the newsweek critic, had done about it running quite a few years earlier, there'd never been anything, there's never, there'd never been a major critic reversing himself that way. And you couldn't even get the, the idea of asking a critic to go back to see a film a second time at that point was unheard of. I mean, you, you just, it never happened. But Joe uh, was, went back and saw it and wrote this fantastic piece. And um, then unexpectedly, there was this uh, full page broadsheet uh, essay by the critic at large at the Christian Science Monitor, which was also a very prestigious uh, national newspaper that, you know, called it revolutionary and talked about it in terms that um, um, were what it was. So I kind of used the different interpretations that those two pieces talked about and how to look at the movie as kind of um, an influence in 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 in, in writing. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so how, how did you come up? How did you come up with kind of the structure of it? Um, you know the format and stuff. Obviously, it's a three or four. Well, it's about a four-minute-long pop song. That's the basis of it, isn't it? But how did you come up with the structure and how you move through? Because it's kind well, of got, it, sections, it, it, got sections, hasn't it? It? It, it? it was basically different ways of looking at it. And I guess now thinking back on it, with those four words at the end of each verse, "ride, glide, fly, soar." were the ways of getting into it. Like ride would be just like the plot. You're going to Jupiter. Glide would be the, you know, visceral impact of actually being in space. Fly would be, uh, you know, actually participating in it. So would be the transforming kind of uh, mystical, metaphysical aspect. How the film transported you to another level of of awareness. So that was why, that's how it was formed. But it was those two pieces, Joe's uh, reversal and the Christian Science Monitor essay that uh, influenced me to 
structured that way, I guess. Well, talk us through kind of the recording process. I believe you played piano. That's your your piano playing. We obviously had uh, the, the the lady vocalist. And was, there, is it, was yeah. it a harpsichord that we heard on there as well? Well, the harpsichord is that night. Um, you know, all this was, um, I was uh, my girlfriend at that time um, was Audie Marks and she, her brother Ira had been in and maybe was still in 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 a in a group uh, a folk music group that um, uh, played uh, on the East Coast and in Canada, and his girlfriend was the lead singer and Naomi Gardner and the third person was uh, a guy named Joey Brooks who eventually became famous because he had written uh, a song called "You Light Up You Light Up My Life" and won an Oscar for. Uh, there had been a movie about it. He'd done a lot of other famous things later on. So they had this group. I didn't know about Joey Brooks until recently. And Naomi Gardner was the singer. And uh, Ira suggested that she do it. And she had th- this amazing voice that had a lot of range and power, I thought. And so we rehearsed it. And uh, he got a studio. We did it like in the middle of the night because it wasn't expensive when, you know, to do it at two in the morning rather than at normal uh, hours. You weren't given a budget for this. You weren't no, given- there was no budget for it. There was no budget. I was just paying for it. I think it cost a hundred bucks or something for the studio. And, uh, you know, Naomi, you know, we just all did it as family practically. Yeah. And so, um, so that's how it happened. And we did about two or three takes on it. I was a nervous wreck. Uh, I didn't even want to play the piano. It was difficult enough having to hear this, and then I had to do it, which is a good in a way because it got me away from, from you know, uh, my nerves. And um, I remember the um, the sound engineer, the studio guy, the engineer, the sound guy, mixer, whatever it was. When we finished it, he came out and he said, to, "He said it sounds like the movie," and oh, that yeah. was a great. Uh, I felt. That couldn't have been a better compliment. So um, I felt good about it. I felt good about the whole process. And then I went to Stanley and said, um, I told him, well I, well, I wrote this, well, I've written this song. Now, we hadn't spoken about it in a month at all. Since that, you know, he gave me the look and, and he asked me to do it. And that day, like, and, but he was like expecting it. I mean, uh, it wasn't like a surprise to him. <laughs> And uh, he said, all right, we'll come out and play it. How about to the house and we'll hear it at the weekend. Ira drove me out. He was living on, he had moved to Long Island. I felt really good because I felt good about the song and how it turned out. And it was intended to, you know, stimulate more talk about the movie and people who had seen it could relate to it. People who didn't would wonder what it was about or whatever. So I went out there and I was expecting that I was going to, it was going to be played on like this great stereo system that um, this perfectionist master filmmaker would have in his house. Yeah. And, um, you know, we have a drink, we sit down. And then Anya, his daughter, who must have been about 10 or 11, brings out this wooden Victrola in her hands and puts it down on a table. And that's where we were going to hear the song. And I was just, startled but what could i do so we put it on and and the speakers i mean it's just this you know 
He's old high five. Uh, that's the way we hear the song. And then he says, uh, well, let me hear it again. So we play it a second time. And I'm a wreck. I mean, I've heard this in the studio, with a, you know, this proper recording studio. I mean, all, I've been used to seeing 2001, you know, being enveloped by uh, the technology and the music and the sound. And here we're listening to the song on this old uh, record player. And so he said, well, um, well, I don't think so. He said, I don't think the, uh, I know what makes a hit single and the, 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 the melody isn't catchy enough and uh, the lyrics won't mean anything unless people have seen the movie. Uh, you know, and then he asked me, he said, uh, who wrote that line, uh, Garden of Personal Mirrors? And I said, well, that's, you know, a line that I wrote. He said, he said well, that's very poetic. And, and then that was that. And then he said, uh, uh, how much did it cost I'll pay for it? And I said, forget about it. I, I was really, you know, shaken, basically. Wow, what an experience to go through. And that was that. And that was that. I mean, you know, Stanley, you know, was, you know, was very polite. I mean, it, he, it wasn't dismissive. I mean, it was, I think he appreciated uh, the work that was done, but it, he didn't respond to him that way. And I just think he was, he was wrong about it because what the, I intended the song to do was to stimulate first additional word of mouth from the people who saw the, who knew, knew it, and then it would perpetuate. But, you know, I couldn't say anything to him further about it. I mean, I was extremely vulnerable. That's why I never told anyone that I wrote music to begin with because yeah. it was very, it was very private. And so I, we went back. I was really shaken uh, by the whole thing, and uh, um, and then um, and that was that. And that and so I I I didn't write anything for at least another year or two after that. I mean, it was I took it took a lot out of me, and and it didn't affect our friendship at all. I mean, we never spoke about it again. And I put it, you know, in in this corner. I mean, he's the author, and it, he, you know, if if someone else had written it. Uh, and I and thinking about that now, or if I use an alias or something, if someone else had written it and been presented to me as the marketing strategist, I would have fought for it. But because it was mine, I couldn't do it. Yeah, um, it, it was too it was too personal. And then suddenly, um, I I I had heard it over over the years because I had the demo and I made a tape of it. There were about six or seven songs that I did that with, and I put it on this loop that I have that I go to sleep to every night. It's about 300 songs, and they're mainly female jazz singers. And then this comes on every once in a while, and I say, oh, this sounds good. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, it sounds as good as those. Oh, oh and maybe not that, but uh, it, it sounds in the mix. And um, there was one time when 2000 turned into 2001 at midnight uh there was a progressive radio station in in la on npr called um kcrw it's a it's one of the biggest uh, and i knew one of the disc jockeys there and he played it uh at midnight when 2000 became oh wow 2000. great so that a couple of times so got, some, was, got the airplay yeah. then yeah yeah so that was the only exposure that it ever had and that was uh, you know 20 years ago so um when this happened 
I got involved uh, with this company because uh, a friend of mine, Alan Nichols, he's an actor and a musician. He was in Nashville and uh, a lot of other Altman movies. We were in, in Buffalo. I met him. We were both in Buffalo Bill and the Indians. And he had written the background music for Three Women, which this record company was going to bring out. And I was the publicist on Three Women. And he thought that I, they should contact me because I could give them material about it and what to use. And, and this is like in the last two or three years, isn't it? This yeah, is, this is like six months ago. And this is Wave, Wave Theory Records from the UK. Wave, Wave Theory Records, which is founded by Dan Jones, is a composer who did Lady Macbeth. And he's won a lot of Grammys or been nominated. And it, it's a record company founded by composers for composers, higher end specialized uh, label. And so Alan's music was being, being um, uh, brought out. And I'd been thinking about doing something about my music because I'm getting older and I like a lot of it. And it should be. So I may just mentioned that I had done this about 2001. So Dan wanted to hear it right away. <laughs> so uh, I sent him this article uh, called the single, which describes the whole process of how it happened first. And then he said, Oh, listen, if you, if you know, I really love this article, you know, if you feel comfortable in sending it to me, please do. I'd love to hear it. So I did. And he responded. And so that, you know, that's how it happened. And at the same time, uh, for years, um, the, uh, the score to three women was written by this avant-garde composer, Gerald Busby. And it's got its real a real following. It was never been released. And I got involved over the years once or twice with, with, with trying to get it out. And Dan absolutely loves the, that movie, loves the score. And he's just released the score. We, we were able to get that out also. So, but it was just, again, out of the blue, I sent him the thing, you know, and again, you know, I was nervous about that because of getting reaction to it but it you know uh it's had some not. great reactions it's had some great reactions hasn't it yeah it seems to have hit the nerve and yeah and uh, well, i'm surprised i think that the article in the observer was the most important i think that stimulated a lot of response on it and because of that and there were a couple of other things that have happened with it they're going to bring out a vinyl and it's the first vinyl that the the company has, has uh wow released. Well, that says a lot if, they, if they're willing to put it on a different format at this stage. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll be looking for a copy of that because they've just released um, As Wide, not that company, but a different company released As Wide Shut on vinyl very recently. Oh, uh, really? Just a small company with really nice packaging. Uh, yeah. it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't Warner Brothers. And there's a lot of Kubrick fans who are well into vinyl. I'm sure there'll be a few copies of that being picked up. From- Good, but it's just really thrown me for a loop. And <laughs> 53 years ago, when I think about it, it's like yesterday because I, I can remember everything. But um, I'm the only one that, you know, thinks that way. And it's just, um, I don't know, it's, 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 I mean, it makes me think about everything about the movie and about mortality and all kinds of stuff that, this is that this has actually happened after fifty-two years. Unbelievable. Would you like to introduce it now and tell us the title of it? Uh, the title is um originally I called it just 2001 the single, and then uh I we couldn't use the single because of some kind of 
music industry rule that a single is can't be called a single a single is like a single or an lp or whatever okay. so we had to think of something else so i said well call it uh god in a personal mirrors and that's the line that stanley liked and it sums up you know the movie as well and so it's called 2001 a garden of personal mirrors
I think Stanley would be uh, pleased that it's come out after all these years because he was uh, admired persistence. So, uh, yeah. Else. I can imagine that he'd love the idea of that coming around after all this time and that would bring back some memories for him as well, no doubt. Uh, yeah. yeah. I have a couple 2001 questions uh, before we move on. Yeah. Uh, one is, so I didn't see 2001 until late 1969. I lived out in western New Jersey uh-huh. and at a small theater. I suspect it was a 35 millimeter print. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when I was in college in 77, I think I saw it on a 16 millimeter print. Mm-hmm. Now, I was perfectly happy with both prints, but were you involved in those kinds of distribution, regional and college? No, no, uh, no. I mean, after uh, my involvement with almost all the movies uh, that I've been involved with is once the campaign is set and the opening is done. With 2001, it was different with bringing it back in 70 millimeter because that was a special situation. It, it's great to hear that. I mean, I think that the film can, should only be seen with the full bells and whistles. I mean, I objected to, uh, I've never seen it on TV. I did see half of it on TV once. I'm not going to watch it on TV. It's, 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 uh, it's sacrilegious. Uh, but I did, but it hooked me again. And uh, I saw it. Uh, I've only seen it in, in, in the theater in that uh, original uh, uh, 70 millimeter presentation. I saw it originally 28 times in those two years. And then I've seen it a few other times uh, since then. The last time was about a year ago. The American Cinematheque actually bought a print in 2001. Uh, so they would have it. I mean, they would be paying license fees for it when they show it, whatever. And they showed it at the Aero Theater. And it was a beautiful, absolutely pristine print. And what struck me was that you know, uh, in the spacecraft, there's all these little screens about, you know, uh, the, the technical things that are going on in, in the spaceship, etc. And you see a lot of that. And in an intermission, as soon as the intermission happened, everyone pulls out their their iPhones and you saw the entire audience, all these little screens were up there and it made me think that it was just a continuation of yeah. <laughs> it was, I mean, it, anyway, that's what struck me. You know, and I hadn't seen Gary Lockwood. Uh, we were friends and he was at that showing. So that was nice. We have some people in our group who are very fussy over prints and soundtracks. And so one of them is always saying how the, the new prints of 2001 don't match the original quality of that first run. Yeah, well, I don't understand. I mean, I know that that Christopher Nolan did some job. Uh, they did a, a release of he, you know, supervised each frame or whatever, and and people went to see it and told me that they, it looked scratchy to them or something. So that's why, or it wasn't it wasn't anything special, and because that's why I wanted to see the American Cinematheque print that they had bought, which was, uh, you know, which they've shown probably maybe eight or nine times. And it was perfect. It was pristine. I don't know what Christopher Nolan, you know, and Warner Brothers did with that. And I guess it, it was a, a way for them to make more money because Christopher Nolan's uh, name was attached to it in some fashion. The last time that I saw all I can say is that if you're in L.A. and the American Cinematheque is showing it, definitely go and see it, that print. And then my other question is, I read in a book on Kubrick's use of music that 
the soundtrack album for 2001 was a surprise hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you involved with that at all? Is that your no? Name? I wasn't. I wasn't involved. In, I wasn't involved in. in there was going to be a soundtrack uh, release, uh, which was natural almost for every movie that came out. And the fact that it was a, um, I was surprised, I guess, a, a little bit in the beginning, but not really because the film was so loved that people would want to get uh, souvenirs of it in, in, in some fashion. The music is fantastic in it anyway. It seemed to be to be a natural extension of the phenomenon that the soundtrack album would be a, a big success. I remember one aspect of it that was uh, novel was that it was classical music. It kind of created a revival. Right, 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 right. You know, it was a genius um, use of music. That, you know, that's all. And I didn't even know, I had forgotten that Alex North had written a score that Stanley had commissioned originally which Dan Jones, the head of Wave Theory Records, knew immediately. And he thought that was a parallel with the single coming out. It would be natural that, you know, Stanley would initiate additional interest in classical music in addition to everything else that film does. And one other trivial question. When you were working with Stanley at the MTM building, did you ever eat together in the cafeteria or order in or go to any restaurant? Uh, there was no cafeteria in the MGM building. We had to go out. I mean, I would often have lunch out uh, with different contacts. because There were two very good restaurants right next to the MGM building. Uh, you know, I never go there with Stanley because, I mean, it would take up too much time. And, you know, he was not, uh, you know, it would be wasteful uh, to do that. In fact, this is an interesting story I was thinking about the other day. When I worked on clockwork, uh, in England, uh, for those two or three months, uh, you know, I'd eat lunch with him every day and the family. And then often when I'd be working late, uh, we'd eat there. And he said to me, we had fish one day. I think it was filet of sole. And he said, now, this is really easy to do. It's really, it's really healthy. It doesn't take any time. And, uh, you know, it's good for you. And he made, you know, fried up uh, some uh, some fish in like about 10 minutes. And he said, you know, this, he didn't call it a secret. He said, you know, you don't need anything else. And then, then you don't have to waste uh, an hour eating or whatever. So he, he was always conscious of, um, of, uh, of time and, and always being productive in what he was involved. So taking a, you know, going to a fancy New York restaurant for lunch, forget about it. We probably ordered in, I don't know, sandwiches or something. Mike, we were just talking about True Cinerama, the three-strip projection. Uh, were you ever involved with any of that marketing? No, no. I think that, I'm not sure about that. All the technical stuff, I'm not really an expert on. I believe that, with 2001, I think Stanley looked at it that way and didn't like the separations between the three panels or something. But I'm 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 not I'm not, I'm not clear on that. I mean, I saw this is Center Cinerama when I was a kid, and uh, there was a Western I think done in Cinerama that I saw. But oh, the West was one. Yeah, yeah. 
It looks like they stopped doing three strip in '63, so that was just before uh, before uh, Stanley started 2001. I guess they stopped doing it. Right. Yeah. I thought. I think he thought the '70 the way he did it was much more effective and uh, easier. And, uh, yeah. What he Mike, we had someone else who did see 2001 in the original theater in New York, uh, and he's always maintained that that curved Cinerama screen that they had uh, was a different experience of watching 2001 than on any flat screen. Um, I, I don't know. I, well, I, I mainly saw it in that theater. As I remember it, when it went to the Aster, I think it was the Aster uh, from that first move over because the Capitol was being destroyed. I think the screen was similar to that when it, I, 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 and I saw it once in Montreal in an IMAX theater where um, the IMAX screen was like dwarfed uh, the 2001 presentation. And when, it, when, it, when we relaunched it in 70 at the Ziegfeld, that screen was not as impressive as the first one. But it, it was still spectacular, but it wasn't quite the same uh, dimensions or uh, perspective. Well, you just put it in perspective to me, because the most impressive experience I've had is at the Ziegfeld, seeing Lawrence of Arabia with the Terrific. screen. I mean, that was fantastic when it opened, and it was an amazing night, and uh, for many reasons. And I got goosebumps because there was this almost, uh, there was like a standing ovation when the overture came on. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was just, uh, I wish Stanley had been there then. It was uh, 360 degrees uh, reversal of what, of the New York premiere reaction. So anyway. <laughs> that was the Ziegfeld opening? Yeah. Oh, great. Wow. Gives me shivers. That was uh, in March of uh, 70. And we had uh, little buttons that we gave out of the ultimate trip. And we had space food from NASA. Uh <laughs> little pellets of whatever the hell they said the the food was. This is kind of important. I wanted to dress up that theater, and I asked Stanley about any of the models for the film, if we could have the models in the lobby. And he said, he said, I I never want those to be shown. They're basically, he described them as basically fancy pressure cookers, and it would spoil the magic if people saw them. And he's right. Really He's absolutely right. So um, the Academy, I think, has bought um, a model, and I'm hoping that they won't uh, display it. I'm going to get into that uh, at some point. Yeah, they've so. got the the Aries, the Aries pod, haven't they, the, the lunar lander? Well, I mean, he's absolutely right. You see the movie, you're absolutely transported, then you go into the lobby, you are anywhere, and you, you see this thing that's, you know, you know two feet uh, by two feet. I mean, it, it looks like a toy. Let's get on to talking about uh, what the critics had to say about the film. Um, it was very, um, for today's audiences, the power and importance of the critics at that point were, were, was uh, significant. And it's nothing like it. it is today where half the quotes that you see from from the press, you don't even know what publications they're from. They drag them out of nowhere. But um, and and the center of um, film criticism was in New York. Uh, from my point of view, there were like four quadrants, I call it, of 
critical importance. One was uh, the New York Times. Uh, one was uh, Pauline Kael. Another was Andrew Saris in the Village Voice, who was um, the father of, of, of conveying uh, auteur uh, criticism in America and is responsible really for uh, directors using a film by credit before the whole auteur thing became prominent. Uh, that never happened. Uh, and the last uh, quadrant was, in my mind, the most popular and known critic in America was Judith Christ. And Judith Christ began her career at the New York Herald Tribune, where she was kind of a force against the, the more conservative film philosophy of Bosley Crowther, the longtime New York Times critic. So when she became prominent because of her daring uh, way of uh, using her criticism to promote certain films and, and the strength of her writing made her extremely important. She then became the first national television critic in America on the Today Show, which was the biggest morning show. I don't know what um, the equivalent would be in, in uh, England at that, at that time. But before the, before Judy, uh, there had never been a national film critic. So that was a huge audience. And on top of that, she was the film critic for TV Guide, which was the biggest magazine in America with a 25 million circulation. She, she's not forgotten now, but her her influence and her importance is is um, underestimated or undervalued. And I, it irritates me whenever people are writing about the 60s and the 70s and the golden age of uh, the second golden age of movie making. The person they always cite is Pauline Kael. And Pauline Kael was known to a very, compared to the others, to basically a much more limited audience. I mean, she was fashionable and she was uh, provocative, but but her um, influence beyond a small, uh, a small, what would be one could say, a small circle of the intelligentsia or the um, fashionable, social, political influences uh, were was um, limited. So when 2001 came out, uh, th those were the, the, the key, those four areas were the key ones that I was the most interested in. There was time in Newsweek also, but even though they were national, they weren't, they didn't really have the weight that the other, the others did. Uh, Saris was maybe also not as well known to uh, the, the general public, but he balanced out Pauline Kael, and there was, uh, you know, a noted rivalry between the two. Mm. And he had his following. I was much more in in Andy Saris's uh, camp than I was in Pauline's. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I knew, and at that point, I knew that the word was out. And we sensed that she wasn't going to like the movie. And she had gone to the premiere with a, a friend of mine. Uh, we all lived in this small brownstone in, uh, next to the MGM building. And I could tell by his body language <clears throat> afterwards when we talked a little bit about Pauline Kale, he couldn't really say anything. But uh, we basically knew that it was going to be negative from her. Judy Christ. Um, who is, had been a big Kubrick fan, um, I knew um, 
didn't get the film, didn't respond to it at all. Thought it was, she was in the camp of it was long and boring and technically interesting, but didn't work. Um, Saris was breaking um, the Thursday, I think, after the main reviews came out. And we, I, we didn't know what he was going to think. And neither did we know what the New York Times was going to think because they had just hired uh, earlier a new critic, Renata Adler, who was a novelist. She was basically only lasted a year at the New York Times, but she was the critic who was reviewing the film. And we had no idea what she was going to think because we didn't have a lot of reference about her film knowledge to begin with. So it was everything was precarious. The Times Review came out, and it was negative, basically. And she did a Sunday piece where she called the monolith. Um, it was like a Hershey bar, she described it as. <laughs> and um, Judy, uh, she didn't dismiss it, but it was a negative review. And Saris didn't like it either. So we had zero of the four. And what's interesting is that over the years... The only one of the four who, or the publication that didn't change their mind was Pauline Kale in the New York, although Penelope Gilead, who was the uh, alternative critic six months a year in the New York, uh, loved 2001. But Saris went back to see it on the relaunching in the Ziegfeld that night and then wrote a rave and said he was wrong about it. Vincent Camby became the critic, the main replace Renata Adler in the, at the New York Times and I knew Vincent was a Vincent was a friend I knew that he was that he was going to write something major because he we had talked about he was going to do something for the relaunching and I knew it had to be positive and it was great and so so the New York Times which was in a way the most important in certain ways and then Judy she never wrote about it, but she, I, I spoke to her about it uh, at that time or, or shortly afterwards. And she said, well, I was wrong about 2001. And she admitted it. So all three out of the four came around. And uh, I think that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. I think most, most viewers of Kubrick films kind of come to, they don't get it straight away anyway, do they? As, a, as, a, as an audience. It takes the audience a few visits to, to start. Yeah, I think it's established now. I mean, that, that you know, you have to see a Cuban film more than once uh, to, to, to appreciate it. I yes. mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah. I mean, uh, and so uh, it's a multiple viewing uh, experience. And, um, but it wasn't that, at that point, for anyone to go back a second time, certainly the critics or even the public, to see films more than once was a rarity. I mean, there were certain ones that people loved and saw over and over again, but it wasn't it wasn't um, part of the culture as it became, as mm. it is now as well. Yeah, and so, I think I think two thousand and one was probably his first film that warranted repeat viewing. But all the films after that were also the same. The films before weren't, you know, you got Paths of Glory on the first viewing, you got The Killing on the first viewing, but from, from 68 and with 2001 and everything that came later, they all demanded a second and third and fourth viewing. They all were, and they all were event movies. I mean, uh, um, and that was they were all positioned that way, and it's, and, and it's true. I mean, uh, all the way through Eyes Wide Shut, uh, I've always had numerous uh, discussions with people about the film the first time they've seen it or which 
any of those films. And Clockwork was certainly uh, planned and choreographed as a major work. And uh, when I screened it, uh, when I set the screening schedule for the critics in New York, because um, there was a, a limited amount of time for them to see 2001 because of the print was available. It was a similar situation with Clockwork because the final print didn't come in until like, I think, two weeks before or 10 days before. But the screening, the first, the major uh, screenings for the, for the critics were set on the very first day that we could do it. I think it was a Monday. Uh, a Monday afternoon, a Monday evening. But with that invitation, I listed all of the other dates that they could come and see it as well. So um, they had that option. And even on that first screening, because of the critical situation, I I remember having to specifically designate uh, the seats of where the critics were going to be sitting at at Cinema One. And... uh, because of the whole kale situation, um, I, I designated the seats where Pauline and Andy Saris were sitting on the opposite ends of the same row, so they so she couldn't see uh, what any reactions that he might be having, and that was something that I thought that she would be aware of. Did any critics attend multiple screenings? Because I think it would be hard to review a movie based on one viewing. I know they have to some, most of the time. Well, they, well, at that point, they did. Uh, it was very rare for them to do it because when I did suggest uh, to several critics uh, that they come back and see it again, I think even Judy, uh, I may have tried with Judy because I was close enough to... No, I don't think I did because it was a very bold move to suggest that they see it again. I mean, unless you were really, and I was very close to, uh, knew her very well, but she was really, um, it was something also for, a little bit formidable about her because of what she represented at all these publications that um, you had to tread a little bit lightly there. On Clockwork, I know that some of them came back uh, a second time before they reviewed it. And I did a little, I was kind of cheeky that um, I didn't have any production notes for the film. Uh, I said that uh, I kind of felt that, (laughs) well, there were two reasons. One, I kind of felt that because they didn't respond the first time to 2001, uh, um, they have to work (laughs) maybe a a little bit harder. I don't know if I thought about it to, to that degree. So, but the other reason was that I had no time to write it. And writing production notes is really extremely difficult if you're trying to write them intelligently, guiding the uh, critics into the movie, giving them interesting information. I had a friend, Rafe Blasey, uh, who uh, became a, a good, very good publicist. And um, he would have to go to a therapist before writing uh, <laughs> production notes because it was so... Uh, daunting anyway but i didn't have the time to do it because it was there's all these other things to do uh warner brothers had hired someone uh to write some and they were just kind of banal and pedestrian and and we we never used it um so i so i gave the handout to the critics 
was kind of like a concert program where each um, actor was, was we, they had the, the list of the actors, but then I had them that had them uh, inserted in each scene where they first appeared with the music that appeared in that sequence. So um, um, they got, they, they got their sheet and they had all of the listings of all of the scenes and what the scenes were and what music was used in it because of the way Stanley used music creatively and it was a different way of presenting it. I remember Archer Winston, who was a critic for the New York Post, uh, who was, a, who was a, a very bright guy, came out and he said, well, this is like a concert program. I said, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and he was also the one who... Uh, and at the 2001 screening, I remember it, he walked out completely dazed, didn't know what was happening. I walked him down Broadway and he said to me, I didn't know that Clavius was a, a, a planet. And I said, Clavius isn't a planet. Clavius is the name of the crater where they, where, where, where they discover the monolith. And so that always stuck in my mind because there's only 22 minutes of dialogue in 2001. And even that, people were so disoriented by the shape of the movie and the non-linear aspect of the movie that even a basic piece of plot information about the name of, of the, the crater uh, wasn't absorbed. We'll have more from Mike talking about A Clockwork Orange and other Kubrick films, as well as his time working with Robert Altman, Hal Ashby, and The Rolling Stones in a future episode. So, in the meanwhile, check out our Facebook pages, The Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and Kubrick's Universe. And be sure to leave your feedback on the show. Rate and review us directly on your podcatcher, and stay tuned for another episode coming soon. Signing off till next time, I'm your host, Jason Furlong, thanking you for tuning in and reminding you in the immortal words of Joliet Jake Blues, do what you feel and keep both feet on the wheel. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, we're floating in space.
It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society. 